All right, guys, let's get started. We're going to talk about the family some more, and we're going to talk about the role that the family has in a Christian society. But before we do that, let's pray. Let's ask for God's blessing on this study. Heavenly Father, we come before you today thanking you for all the many blessings that you've given to us. Uh, Thank you for your word. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for Christ uh, dying on the cross uh, on our behalf. And Father, I pray that as we um, look at your word and we study it, that we would be built up and edified uh, in our lives and that you would be glorified and that we would uh, be better equipped to serve you. Uh, Please help us with these things. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Okay, so started talking last week about the role of the family in a Christian society. What are some of those roles? Addie? A mother, yeah, that's one role of a member of the family, the institution of the family. Uh, Lucas? Uh, I was going to say father, but never mind. Okay. Benjamin? To, um, to direct the children. To direct children? To um, the right, proper place, which is God. Oh, never mind. Try it again, try again. I think I know where you're going. Uh, like, just, never mind. Okay. The institution of the family. What are one of its roles? Jude? I think it's what Ben was saying, but to educate children. To educate children. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, yeah. I knew we were getting somewhere. Okay, educate children, bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. What's another role? You can just look at your notes from last week and tell me. To vote. To vote? What do you mean? Like to uh, have a say in like whatever the political... I don't, I don't know. Yeah. That was just a guess. Sure. Okay. The state is not over the church and family, and the church is not over the state and family, and the family is not over the church and state. That is true, but it doesn't really answer the question what is one role the family plays? Lucas. Uh, children are tools of dominion. Yes, that's right. To have children, and those children. <laughs> Uh, exercising dominion, that's a tool of dominion. That's right. That's right. That's, uh, would you say that that's the primary tool of dominion in the world? No. No? Okay. I don't know. I would say it is. Because without families, you, you don't have a church. Without households, you don't have a nation. You don't have a state. Uh, now, I'm not saying it's the only means of dominion, but it, I think it's the primary one. Um, <laughs> And we'll talk about uh, how that plays out here today. So we're going to talk about the family and welfare. So when I say welfare, does everybody understand what I mean by that? Yeah, or resources, assets, food, place to live, stuff like that. Yeah, so uh, these days, who is the primary giver of welfare? What institution? Government. Government. Right, government, government, government. The, the state, right. Um, do you think that's the way God has intended it to be? No. no. Who do you think is the, should be the chief agency of welfare? Church. No? It is one. What? The other one left. Yeah, the family, right. The family. The family is designed by God as the chief agency of welfare. They should be the number one welfare givers. So, so what is welfare? Welfare is basically the effort used to take care of the basic physical and material needs of people who don't have those things, right? Mm-hmm. It's the effort used to take care of the basic physical and material needs of people who don't have physical and material things, food, shelter, water, clothes, stuff like that. So welfare basically is intended to solve problems of poverty, sickness, and crisis. And the family is the institution that is most effective in solving those problems. And it's the, it's the only agency that actually knows the recipient's limitations and strengths. Uh, the head of every household should count the cost of every project that the family is looking to work on. So no other human institution links together the, what you would call mutual self-interest, mutual understanding, mutual obligations, and mutual support in a way 
that a family can. Why is that? Because uh, anybody that the family helps, they actually know these people that they're trying to help, right? Does Joe Biden know you? No. No, he does not know you. You're, yeah, There's, does uh, the welfare agency down the street know you as a family? They know your parents? They know uh, where you're coming from? No, they don't know. So uh, the head of every household uh, should uh, count the cost and whether to help somebody or not, and they count these costs based on the knowledge of the person of the family that they're trying to help out, Right? Um, they, uh, members of different families are intimately involved with each other. They know each other's strengths. They know each other's weaknesses. And the family is also an extended institution with contracts and uh, contacts and connections that share their bloodline, right? How many of y'all, how many of your families have helped other family members in need? Like they were your blood, like relatives. Yeah, that makes sense. Why were you guys called to help them instead of somebody else that's not their relative? Because they're your relatives. Yeah, yeah exactly. That's, that's all, it all has a Christian background in it. Yeah, um, we know those people the best. And there's still like a residue of Christianity in our culture uh, that says that those who share the same bloodline as the person that needs help, the, the relatives are supposed to help them out. Right? That's Christian concepts. So, and because it's so important that charity and benevolence when you give things to people, uh, that giving should be as personal as possible. You should know the people you're giving to. Uh, It must be personal whenever it can be. Uh, Let's say, let's talk about the Samaritan in Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan. The Good Samaritan came across uh, an injured man who couldn't help himself, right? Uh, He was bloody and beat up on the ground. He needed welfare for sure. Uh, He needed welfare in order to survive, and the Samaritan gave it to him. Uh, He helped him. And so here's what's interesting about it. The Samaritan could actually see how bad the man was hurt. He literally saw him on the ground, bleeding and dying, right? Uh, He could see that he wasn't being tricked or he wasn't being swindled uh, in order to be robbed or taken advantage of, like his, his generosity would be taken advantage of. Right. He can literally see the guy needs help. Right. And he had the necessary resources to help that man. Uh, He was in the same location to the place where the man could be helped. Right. He wasn't in Washington, D.C. trying to help people he didn't know. Uh, You know, Washington, D.C. tries to help people that are in poverty. But do they know any of these people that they're trying to help out? Can they see visibly see their needs in their own households? No, they can't see that. So, uh, and a lot of people do, as we all know, they milk the system and they take advantage of the system and they lie to stay in the system in order to continue to be helped, right? So the Good Samaritan, he hired a doctor or the caretaker, the guy at the end, personally. He did that on his own, which meant that he could, could hold the caretaker responsible for the care of the injured man since he was paying him to do the work. Right? That's different than the government hiring such and such an agency to do this. They, you can't hold them accountable that easily. Right? So this is how Jesus defined that term neighbor. Remember the uh, Pharisee asked him, well, who is my neighbor? And he, Jesus answered with this, question, this uh, parable. Right? And so what is a neighbor? What do you all think? Like Jesus says, or this guy asks you, who is my neighbor? Well, what would you answer? Friend, family, someone you know, okay? Anyone you know, anyone you encounter is your neighbor. I'll say anyone who helps you. Anyone who helps you? Yeah, so, uh, yeah, so. Because he encountered the Pharisee, or the guy on the road before the Samaritan, the other thing was like a Pharisee, a Levite. Right. He encountered the Levite before, and he's not his neighbor. So then the people that live next to you are your neighbors? I guess. I don't know. It's all good questions. So what is a neighbor? I think, I think some of these kind of have the right definition. Um, you know, is some random guy in India my neighbor? No. 
well, okay. What if this? What if a random Indian guy came and came to the school and knocked on the door here, and asked for help? Yeah. That's your neighbor. Am I automatically obliged to help him? No. Why not? Because he's not in covenant community. I don't know him. Okay. Do I? Yeah, but I don't know that. I don't know whether this person's gonna gonna take advantage of me or not. I know I don't know you at all. So help him, but like if he if he like should I write him a check for a thousand dollars if he needs it? No, why not? Because he could just be stealing my money and not really need the help. Uh, if. If I can trust him to be around little children at the well, school, yeah, which I don't know him, I couldn't do that. In my own on my own position, if he knocked on this door, there's not a whole lot I can do for him at this yeah. point in time because there's no covenant bond between us. There's no trust. I don't know you very well. Um, I, maybe I can let you borrow my phone so you can call somebody else that could help you if, if, if you have someone. Yeah, so it's that's an interesting question. Who is my neighbor? Well, I have a definition here of a neighbor, and I think it's a pretty good one. It's the one, uh, this is like a essay form of, I kind of put this in the, the definition of a neighbor. I got it from this parable. Uh, it says, a neighbor is basically someone who is in a position to help and indeed does help based on accurate information concerning the plight of the injured or helpless. Now, I know that sounds like a real technical definition. I'll say it again. A neighbor is basically someone who is in a position to help and indeed does help based on accurate information concerning the plight of the injured or the helpless. So I don't know this guy that comes to my front door. I, uh, does he need help? Maybe. Am I in a position to help? Maybe. In what way could I help him? I could, if Let's say he's hungry. I could buy him a meal. I could afford that. I could buy him a meal. Um, but I don't have accurate information concerning his plight or his injuries or his hunger or any of those things. So it would be difficult for me to offer that kind of help because I don't know if I'm really going to be helping him by doing this. Does that make sense? Um, you know, the person... Uh, and, and this is interesting uh, because it's, we always get these things all the time. You ever see those panhandlers on the corners, like on the intersections of, mm-hmm. like, I know, Louisiana Avenue and, like, around Target? Yeah, I mean, Always have that. Now they have signs that say you can help by calling 211. I guess that's you give to the government to, for the government to help. Don't do that. Uh, or, you know, there's several places on Evangeline Thruway where they have panhandlers and things. Okay. Yeah. Uh huh. There's always someone there too. Yeah. So um, you know, ordinarily I'm very hesitant to give to these people because I don't know you. I know you're out there with a little cardboard sign, and you look like you need help, and you very well may need help. But you know, I've seen I saw a YouTube just video just recently of someone who, like, was panhandling, and this guy decided to investigate them and follow them around for a little while. Any of y'all saw that? Yeah, he went back to, he had a house and a car and everything. He had two cars. Yeah, well, there was, I saw one where this lady was doing it. And uh, it was like buying McDonald's. So it's easy for him to get money, I guess, since people go through the drive-thru all the time. And uh, after, like, so he stuck around for a while. He gave, he gave money to her just to kind of be in this a little bit. So he went park across the street and just watched her the rest of the day. Well, she was, whenever she decided to pack up, she went around the building behind McDonald's and got into her nice 2021 Mercedes Benz convertible. <laughs> and right when she got in the car, the guy's like, I just gave money to you. I just gave you had the camera on her and everything. Like, You're a fraud. You're a fraud. What, what do you have to say for yourself? And she was all ashamed. She was like, get away from me. She's like, you need to leave me alone and all this. So look, people like are professional panhandlers. Like, you can make good money doing that. Well, you want to be a panhandler. Well, you know, some people just see an opportunity and go for it. But that's deceiving people. And, uh, you know, that by definition, that's not 
that's not your neighbor. But I can't tell who my neighbor is because I don't know you. I don't know if you have a BMW behind Target over there that you're going to walk go into. And, 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 you know, as I'm, you know, $5 poorer, I don't know. So anyway, that's the definition of a neighbor. Uh, the person who, let's say we have a real neighbor situation going on, uh, like a good Samaritan injured guy situation. Um, it's the, the person, in contrast to the government, the person most likely to be able to help a poor man is really a slightly less poor man. Does that make sense? Uh, the person that's most likely to be able to help a poor person is a slightly less poor person. Like on the scale, you know, if a random guy who's homeless comes to this door and, and asks for help from me, you know, in the grand scale of things, let's compare his, uh, his wealth to uh, Elon Musk's wealth. Where would my wealth be in this scale? I'm probably like right here yeah. to him. So I'm only slightly less poor. So I'm in more of a position to help than, you know, Bezos or Musk or any of these other guys. So, uh, so me only being slightly less poor, I can recognize a true need better than a man who's far away, better than Washington, D.C., better than Jeff Bezos, who's, you know, all the way wherever he lives in his big mansions. And so I can more accurately assess the short-term solutions to the poor man's problems, right? Because he's not only a poor man, he's a poor man here in Lafayette. He's a poor man here on Willow Street. So I know the area pretty well. I know I may have ideas of what jobs could be available for him. I may have an idea of where he could go to get help. How, how would I know that and Jeff Bezos not know that, even though he's a trillionaire? Because I live here. Yeah, I live here. Uh, I can recognize what people really need more accurately than him. So how much more so for the family? You know, let's say you have a family member who's gone on hard times. Would I be able to, as, a, as just a, someone that you know, but maybe your family member doesn't know, would I be able to help that person better than you can or better than your family can? No, probably not. Because you know them. They're in your proximity. Uh, they are in your neighborhood, in, in every, every bit of the word, neighborhood. Like you, you know them, so you can help them better. You know what they need. I can offer, them, I can offer to write them a check for $5,000, and you may step in and say, no, they do not need a check for $5,000. All they're going to do is drink and drug all that, all that money away. How would I know the difference? I may not know this person. You do. So here's the, here's, if you want to help them, here's a great way you can help them. You can give solutions because you know the person. So that's why God has placed the family as the, the, the chief agency for welfare. Because the family could recognize true need better than someone who's not a family member. Um, <clears throat> and so that's the main one. The church is also another means of welfare. Uh, private charities are another means of welfare. Uh, but we all know the well-paid bureaucratic agents of the state with its programs financed by taxes that the people must pay, they are not going to be able to help the poor except at the expense of everybody else's independence, right? So with the state doing welfare, the rich have to pay, and the poor are going to receive a very small portion of the payments that usually don't help them very much, and who ends up with the rest of the money that all the rich have to pay through taxes? The bureaucrats, exactly. All the middlemen. And so they're going to get rich as the poor person barely gets helped, doesn't really get helped. And the rich person is significantly poorer because of it. And so the relationship turns into a permanent relationship until the welfare state, the pseudo-family, uh, that eventually goes bankrupt and is overthrown internally or conquered by some external nation. And God has done that in the past. So God did not give the state the responsibility to do this at all. The state should not be an agency of welfare, not even a little bit. Mostly the family, some with the church, 
zero with the state. Zero. So welfare from the state. State checks. No. Eh. Wrong. Um, food stamps. Eh. Wrong. Right? Uh, what's another one? Uh, uh, Medicaid. Eh. Wrong. None of this should be financed by the state. It is the family that cares for people. It is the family that should provide the children's educations, uh, not the public school. It's the family that cares for sick relatives. It's the family that provides work for the employable members in its vicinity. So the family does this, and the family does this with feeling. You know, the state, the state doesn't know who any of these people are. You want to give to people because you love them, and you want to help them because they're your family, right? So we actually have a vested interest in helping people because we know who we are helping. We know the family members we're helping. Yes, sir? Uh, what about nursing homes? Well, it just depends. Uh, are they state-funded nursing homes? It, it depends on a lot of that. There are some just basically uh, elderly folks use their government payments, their Social Security or things like that to pay for a nursing home. Um, I think some nursing homes probably get government assistance and federal help to run it. Uh, I think that's a problem. That certainly is a problem. Um, so as far as, the, I'm, I'm not really arguing against the legitimacy of nursing homes, period, but if the state has anything to do with it, um, it's wrong. The, the state shouldn't have nothing to do with any of these things, right? Does that make sense? It's complicated. I think I think the nursing most nursing homes get their income from several different channels. The families being one of them, uh, and a lot of it with the state too. Okay. Um, so the family does this with feeling. The family does this with vested interest because it knows the people that it's helping. Uh, the family provides insurance, uh, but it doesn't provide a lifetime of social security payments that are finally going to be wiped out by mass inflation. Uh, that's that's gonna has to be necessary in order for these programs to run. Okay, uh, everybody knows what Social Security is. I think, so. think so. Can someone give me a brief so definition of Social you Security? Get money your whole life that goes toward this big fund, and then when you're older, they pay you a little bit of it back. Ideally, ideally, the money that you've put in aside all of your life, they take in a form of Social Security tax, and when you finally are able to retire you're supposed to get this money back, okay? Uh, that's ideally that's how it works. But does it really work that way? No. no. You, huh? Taxes. They take a lot of tax out of it. They take, they even tax that. They've already taxed your income when you made the money, right? Mm -hmm. And then when you get the Social Security payment 30 years later, they tax that too. So they've double taxed your money. Um, like do what? They keep on. Why do they keep pushing back the age? Because of what? That you'll buy, you'll die by then. <laughs> There's that. They, and what else? The, the whole fund, the whole system's running out of money uh, because um, the government has approved for other for other projects to get done in the government. They borrow money from that fund. They've taken money from that Social Security fund that everybody's paying into to do other things, and they don't have the money to pay it back. So that fund, that fund is just getting smart, and then that's what they're doing. They are printing more to try to, to, try to overcome that. But we all knows what, know what happens when money is printed, right? It takes more from everyone. Well, it takes more from everyone, and the value of the money printed, and the, when there's more, I know, one day I'm a, we have to learn to do an econ economics class. But the more, um, the more there is of something, of a commodity, uh, the cheaper it is, right? Why is that? Because there's an abundance of it, yeah. right? Scarcity is small. It's the same with money. If money floods the market, you think the, the value of a dollar is going to go up or down? Damn. It's going to go down. Why? Because there's less things chasing that dollar. That's exactly what's going on with this. Right. So uh, the Social Security, that fund is finally going to be wiped out because they're borrowing all the money out of it. Uh, people are living longer 
which is partly why they're raising the age. So they're drawing more out of it. You know, what happens if you get Social Security at 65 and you die at 66? Does your beneficiaries get the rest of that money that you've put into the fund all your life? Nope. No. Who gets it? No. Uncle Sam gets it. That's right. Is that stealing? Yes. yes absolutely. It's stealing. That's wrong. So, that's, so that just gives further proof that the state should have nothing to do with even Social Security. Social insecurity. Hmm? So like, Yes. Well, if we're living to 300 years old, we probably have God's blessing on our culture. And by then, we're and the reason why, how do we get God's blessing on a culture? By following his laws. And you think the state would have any control over Social Security by then? No, no. Right. No, it, it wouldn't have worked that way because God doesn't bless foolishness like that. So, yeah, the family would have the Social Security uh, payments on hand. You know, so anyway. So the family, who's supposed to take care of you when you get old? Your family, right. Um, Deuteronomy 21.17 says this. It says that the oldest son is entitled to a double portion of the family's estate. Now, that doesn't sound very fair. You know, what about younger, what about younger brother? Or what, I, what, what money do I get? My older brother's going to get a double portion. Well, here's the thing. What's the, what's the catch with getting the double portion? You have more responsibility to take care of your parents than than the other uh, siblings do, right? So whenever I say that they get a double portion, that means that if a man has four children who are legally responsible for him as he gets older, then he must divide the estate. You know what the estate is? Everything he has, all of his assets, into five equal shares, right? And so... Every child gets one-fifth, and the oldest gets two-fifths. It doesn't mean all the other children get nothing. It just means they just get less, right? And why does God want the head of household to do that? To pay for him, basically? Sort of, yeah. Because God has set upon the oldest son the primary responsibility for caring for the parents. And, and that makes sense, right? Because yeah. the oldest son is probably the most mature out of all the kids, yeah. right? Well, the oldest kid. And there's probably an older daughter. And let's say you're the, you know, you're the oldest son, but you're like second or third in the family. You have older sisters. Well, I mean... What if they marry like a well, doofus? Well, then, we'll get to that in a second. Well, when, when, when the, the older sisters are finally married, are they still technically a part of that household? No, they're the wives of husbands that have different set of parents to take care of, yeah. right? Uh, so, yeah, so it still go, it falls upon the oldest son. And so um, <clears throat> it, it must be the oldest son or the child, or it could be the kid who is willing to share the responsibility. What if the oldest son's a doofus? Then you don't give a and lazy. And lazy and shows no responsibility. Then you don't give what if all the oldest son wants to do is play football all the time? I'm messing with you. I'm trolling you now. I'm trolling you. It's okay. Uh, then, you know, then what do you do? You give it to the, the parents have the responsibility to give it to the kid who is willing to bear the responsibility. And that person will be treated as the oldest son. That's the way Abraham treated Isaac. Is that right? kind of what happened? Is that kind of what happened for uh, Esau and Jacob? Exactly. Yeah. Even though their oldest, youngest dichotomy is very small. But think about Isaac. Was Isaac the oldest son yes. of Abraham? No. No. <laughs> no. Yes. No. Ishmael was right, and so did Ishmael get the to get the double portion? No. No. God wanted it to go to Isaac in that situation. Uh, so, yeah, he got an inheritance. Yeah, Ishmael helped Isaac bury his father. So it's not like Ishmael was like totally kicked out of the family. He just. He was just a doofus. He, he, yeah, he just wasn't, a ch he wasn't the chosen child. So it was a little bit different. And it's the same thing with Jacob getting the inheritance over Esau, even though Esau was the oldest, technically. Uh, but that's usually the exception to the rules, right? The typical rule is that the oldest son gets the double portion if he's willing to bear the primary responsibility of caring for the aged parents. But if the oldest son isn't showing that he can handle it, or he willingly chooses not to handle it, 
you have to give it to the child who is willing to handle it. And that could be a, 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 could be a daughter if none of the sons, if all the sons are doofuses, or if all the sons uh, don't want the responsibility, then it should go to the daughter. Okay? I, I wouldn't want to be, well, I mean, Addie wouldn't want to be the daughter. Because, but uh, if you were a doofus, she would have to be the daughter. Yeah, because you, you're you already marrying a guy, Uh huh. and he might have to take care of someone's parents too. I would be a lot of responsibility. Yeah, yeah it would be. Um, so, yeah. But the good news is, you know, for other families, and y'all too, y'all have a, y'all have a pretty good amount of children. It's four of y'all, right? Uh, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, the more children you have, the more odds you have, of, the less likely one of the kids are doofuses. So, that's a good thing. And, you know, there's, there's something beneficial about being the oldest child of a large family with a lot of little brothers and sisters. It usually brings out maturity a lot faster. So, there's tons of benefits of all of that. So anyway, so I say all that to say that uh, in the relationship of the father and the son, there is a mutual service from one to the other. You know, when you're old enough to receive the inheritance, you don't, just don't receive the inheritance with no strings attached. Son, I'm going to give you money. You can do whatever you want with it. Yay! And the father gets nothing. No, there's mutual services, and there are mutual blessings. So what are the, what are the mutual blessings? The father and the mother get taken care of when they're old and the son the children they inherit more wealth to exercise more dominion and so all this is welfare all of this welfare uh this is what the government tried to replace with social security and we can see how well that's going everybody's poorer because of it um and all of this welfare all of this stuff is happening inside of the institution of the family the state has nothing to do with it uh, costs and benefits are more closely linked in the family. And, and this law in Deuteronomy is intended to minimize disputes among the rest of the children. See, these days, the son has become, or the state has become the eldest son. You understand what I said? I got my words mixed up. Yeah. The state has become the eldest son. And so when someone dies, depending on how wealthy they are, what tax bracket they're in, guess who takes a portion of their estate in taxes when someone dies? The state does. So the state assumes the role of eldest son taking a double portion. Yeah, and, and oftentimes families are forced to sell off their property, to sell off lands and family heirlooms to pay these estate taxes. So the state has stepped in as the pseudo-family, and now the state is going to demand payment for its services. And so, and those people who voted for the creation of this nanny state a few generations ago, uh, they should have known what was going to happen. We inherited this, guys. It wasn't our fault. But at the same time, we got to deal with it. We have to clean up the mess. And so with the state usurping this role of the family, the state ends up becoming the heir of all the family's generational wealth. Can, can proper dominion be taken if the government owns everything? No, no. And, and uh, the real families, the true families, through all of this become more and more bankrupted. Yet the state, as this inefficient, tyrannical, lifelong, uh, counterfeit mom and dad... Uh, they're also steadily bankrupted because you can't keep taxing people and taxing people and taxing people and not giving them ways to generate their own wealth because of your regulations and expect to keep getting money. Eventually, the people are going to run out of money. And how are the taxes going to be taken if the people have no money? They're so, they're, so they're killing them. They're, they're basically, you know, uh, suffocating themselves. Yes, I guess it could be like that. Sure. So... So what happens, though? It needs new wealth to confiscate, then, to keep going. Uh, yet, the, the steady destruction of the family capital, it withers up the sources of new taxes. And the Bible shows us that God has entrusted the bulk of the welfare obligations to the family, some to the church, and zero to the state. And the Old Testament required citizens to journey to certain cities once every three years for a communal celebration. Check this out. This, has to, this, this is linked, I promise. Deuteronomy 14, starting in verse 28. 
Deuteronomy 14.28. It says this, At the end of three years thou shalt bring forth all of the tithe of thine increase the same year, and shalt lay it up within thy gates. And the Levite, because he hath no part nor inheritance with thee, and the stranger, and the fatherless, and the widow, which are within thy gates, shall come, and shall eat, and be satisfied, <clears throat> that the Lord thy God may bless thee, and all the work of thy hand which thou doest. So, who do you, based on what I just said, who is getting the, the tithes and the sacrifices here? The, Sounds like the state on, in this section. It, it, right. So while it appears that the civil government uh, required this celebration tithe, the individual families had to make the sacrifice, which involved financing for Levites, strangers, widows, only once every three years. But this, but a committed socialist would be hard pressed to make a case for Christian socialism based on this little bit of evidence. For statism, okay? The church is required to take in widows who have reached the age of 60 unconditionally? No, not unconditionally, but whose families have refused to support them, okay? Nephews are considered responsible by the church authorities in these sorts of cases. Nephews. It could, if, if, uh, if the person who can't take care of themselves, they're a Christian, they're a believer, they're in the covenant community, they don't have children to take care of them, or their children are even in a worse position than they are, then what the Bible is saying that it should get transferred to the next of kin, which could be nieces or nephews, right? All of that is well before the church steps in and starts helping them out, right? So that's one of the dangers of being excommunicated. Uh, if, if he being a family member, that's one reason that somebody could get excommunicated. Did you know that? Like if you refuse to support your family members, that's uh, a church discipline offense. So 1 Timothy 5.8 says this, but if any uh, provide not for his own, especially for those of his own house, he had denied the faith and is worse than an infidel or an unbeliever. So here's another role of the family. The role, uh, the family is also the primary trustee of society's wealth. Where should the wealth of a society lie? Which institution? Should it be the church? The family. Should it be, yeah, I know. I'm leading up to it. Should it be the state? No. Should it be the family? Should it be the family? Because the, the, the family serves as a bridge between generations of people. And the family name is an important aspect of biblical rule. So to increase the capital of the family unit is a basic necessity in a Christian society. So the promise that God made to Abraham concerning uh, the inheritance of his descendants, that was central to God's covenant with Abraham, whose name, what does Abraham's name mean? Anybody know? Father of nations. Yeah, father of nations. So God promised to give Abraham's heirs the land of Canaan. So Abraham had been concerned about a lack of an heir uh, for his, his estate. Why is that? He didn't have any kids yet, right? Uh, he had only one person to leave his wealth to, and it wasn't his son. And he didn't have a son. And Abraham wanted a son to inherit all of the capital that God has given him. And he wanted that son to get the family name. See, it was the family that was understood to be the ideal institution for the preservation of wealth and capital. And Abraham understood this, as well as uh, most of the people of his day. This isn't some new concept. And by extending one's family, one extended the dominion of the family, which was the most important institution to belong to in that day. And this hope for a son was part of God's promise when God called him out of Haran. This is Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. It says, Now the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house, unto a land that I will show thee. And I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee, and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curseth thee. 
and in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. So here was a man who was 75 years old with no kids, and he was just promised kids. He was promised heirs. Uh, and God promised him that those things so that he would make his name great. Uh, but he didn't have any kids. So how could this be? So what did he end up doing? Uh, this is a really good incentive to leave your home country. Like, well, you know, it's time to go. Because the future mattered to Abraham. God said that you're going to get this land. Wouldn't it make sense to start traveling to that land? Mm-hmm. Right? That's why he picked up from where he was. And he took off towards the land of Canaan. Um, Because the future mattered to Abraham. He understood the promises that were given to him, even though he would never see his heirs enter into the land of Canaan in his lifetime. But Abraham knew that he could trust God, and Abraham considered that promise as good as done. Right? And four centuries later, 400 years later, his family, though he was Presently, without blood heirs, whenever God made this promise to him, they would eventually receive the land of Canaan and as its inheritance from Abraham by the grace of God. And ultimately, he would receive the entire world because of that. That's longer than America has been around. Yes, that's longer than America has been established. Abraham waited a long time for that promise to uh, come to fruition. He died long before it came. He almost killed his And do what? He almost yes, yeah. right, right. There's that too. What are years this era? Kill him. Well, yeah, he didn't wait 500 years being alive. He wasn't alive that long, uh, but he waited a long time. Do I? What if he didn't Well, then none of us would be here today. That would be really sad. But it wouldn't be possible. I'm sure that I'm sure the angel was pretty clear. True. That's true. <clears throat> so anyway, so would y'all say that Abraham was future oriented? He thought about the future. Would we say that we share that same type of future orientation naturally? How often do you think about the future? All the time. Like how far into the future do you think, Lucas? Usually, your whole life, like to the end. Well, that's good. Like, uh, what about in the next, y'all think about the next five years? Yeah. Right. Do you imagine the future just happening to you? Or do you imagine yourself actually being proactive about where you're going to, where you're going to go, what you're going to do? Or you're like, well, I wonder where I'm going to be in five years. I'm sure there's some of that because we really don't, God is sovereign and he directs our paths, but y'all have plans for the next five years. Yeah. 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 It's a vague plan. It's a vague plan. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of details that need to be put in place. That's good. That's good. A lot of people are not future oriented. They are totally uh, invested into the present, into what today can hold. And they're never talking about the future. That's not the way of a Christian. The Christian should always be thinking about the future, in particular, how the future. how they could take dominion and exercise dominion in the future and how covenant succession could happen in the future. So, <clears throat> yeah, so this, uh, this dominion assignment was given to Adam, right? Uh, it was reconfirmed with Noah, and it is now a part of the covenant between God and his church. And we are to extend the rule of God's law across the face of the earth. We are to subdue the earth and have dominion over the earth, and one of the means of extending dominion is the family. No wonder the one, that one of the promises to Moses was that if the nation remained faithful to God's law, wives wouldn't have miscarriages anymore. Do you know the Bible said that? Exodus 23, verse 26. If, if the nation remained faithful to God's law, wives would be fruitful, and wives would uh, not have miscarriages. Hmm? Or abortions. Well, certainly, not, definitely not abortions. Yeah, and so the promise of a growing stock of human capital is the foundational to God's covenant with his followers. And the family serves as a trustee of that capital. When I say trustee, do y'all know what I mean by that? Like a person you can like... Yeah, like a manager, someone that, someone that by, uh, by law is the person that's authorized to receive the wealth and manage it, Okay. The church is not responsible, like, I mean, the, the, 
let's say, you know, your parents get a paycheck in, right? Or they own their own business and receive wealth. Do they just turn around and hand that off, the entire thing off to the church and the church has all the wealth? No. 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 Does the church require a portion of that wealth? Yeah. Yeah, 10% actually. Yeah, so very small part of that. But it's really the family that has the wealth, and they're charged by God to manage the bulk of the wealth of a Christian society. That's why Deuteronomy 6 requires parents to teach their children the law of God. See, by bringing children under the dominion of God's law, parents rear up families of dominion-minded children. Now, I asked if you were future-oriented. Most of y'all said yes. Are y'all dominion-minded? Yes. Future-oriented. Try to be? be? Yeah. yeah. As much as you can. Yeah, for sure. Uh, That's good. So the submission to God's law kicks off the dominion aspect of God's covenant. So dominion-minded families then extend God's rule even further as they keep having more children who then in turn are going to be brought under the rule of God's law. And then they get married and have more children and then just explodes then. Right? There's, there's little Christian families and babies everywhere. And they, yeah. So, so here's something. What are y'all doing? Y'all are, y'all are silly this afternoon. Goodness gracious. Anyway. All right. Let's see. The Protestant Reformation of the 1500s. Is it that surprising that the Protestant Reformation of the 1500s led to the growth of capitalism in the 1600s. Is that an accident? No. Do I? No. No. There's the Protestant ethic. There's the, its view of time as absolutely fundamental to its success. So men who are confident concerning the future in time and on earth can plan for the long haul. Uh, we can plan for centuries if we need to, and we are. So our vision should extend past our own graves, right? We should see this victory of the kingdom of God in terms of a linear development over time. So that means we can invest a little bit of money today, even at a very low rate of return. uh, And if God blesses its growth for a long enough time, the law of compound interest is going to take effect. And it will lead to a long-haul expansion of capital. That means the kingdom of God, families will be generationally wealthy over the long haul. Right? That's why, there, see, there are some charities that, started by, that were started by Puritan businessmen in London in the late 1500s. Some of these charities are, were still operating by 1900. The same charities under the same generational management. They were still operating in 1900. Why is that? Because the original capital base, the people who invested money into this, invested it over the years, and it led to an expansion of charitable activities, right? And the growth in productivity through just simply investing and getting dividends from that investment was sufficient to operate the charities and still expand their influence. Now, when I talk about... um, uh, investing in dividends. Y'all know what I mean by this? Some of y'all took the financial class last year. So what do I mean by that? Like investing. Ex- explain investing super quickly. Lucas, help Investing me. is like putting money into something and getting money out of it. Right. So let's say you put your money in, I don't know, give me an example. Gold. Gold. Okay. So yeah. So if you uh, buy a bunch of gold, uh, what you, why you invest in it is because eventually you want that gold to go up in value over a long period of time, right? Mm-hmm. So in the future, you can use that gold or sell that gold, and you'll sell it at a profit, more than what you paid for it, right? Hopefully, Hopefully yeah. Gold's pretty volatile. It goes up and down all the time. But over the long haul, like most things like that, precious metals, they do go up in value. But what if you only had 50 years to invest in something? Snowball stands. Yeah. Snowball yeah. stands stocks, yeah. Yes. So let's say you had 50 years to invest in something. Boy, you really, you re, do you really expect you, yourself to get wealthy off of just 50 years of an investment in something that makes a moderate amount of money? Right. Let's, say you has, let's say you invest whatever money you have right now into gold. 
Do you expect to make a whole lot of money in 50 years? No. Probably not. Well, it depends on which stocks. Um, some stocks are more expensive than others. If you invest in a share of Amazon, I mean, you're going to be paying a lot of money. Or if you invest in Bitcoin, uh, let's say you buy like, I don't know, Half, one Bitcoin is a lot of money. <laughs> That's well, Bitcoin's pretty volatile, but just work with me here. Let's say over the long haul, like these investments do make money. Um, let's say you did not share, you shared the government's idea of wealth, and you didn't believe in covenant succession to where your children would be inheriting these things and continuing to invest in them. Um, let's say you only had a couple hundred bucks to invest in gold. Um, 50 years, would you make a, a life-changing amount of money from what you invested? Probably not. You'll probably make a substantial amount. You know, maybe if you invested $200 in gold, maybe 50 years from now you'll get, I don't know, $2,000 or $3,000. Whoop-de-doo, I guess. But if, let's say, though, you had a, a, uh, an idea of covenant succession, and now you've trained your children to invest wisely and properly, and then their children train their children to do, same, do the same thing. Now, of course, you won't be alive this go-round to really see the fruit of it, but let's say you had 300 years to invest in gold or whatever. Will you make a significant amount of money then? Yeah. Yes. You, you won't really be alive to experience the benefits of it. One day you will be. You'll be resurrected, and you'll definitely have the benefits of having that. Then you'll probably you know, have millions made off of that $200 that you put into gold 300 years ago that your kids are finally going to be able to reap the, the benefits from. But here's the important thing. Like, you know, a lot of people don't believe that uh, their wealth goes past their children. So what do they do to try to make a buck? They invest in volatile things. They invest in very risky things. Yeah. Yes. Or they gamble. Or they just try to, to put their money in these high-risk investments where the, usually you lose more than you make. Right? We don't have to do that as Christians. We can put our money in the most boring things that make the very little return, but we have time on our side. And uh, you know, we can do that. Uh, there's so much more to say, and I'm out of time. But uh, I'll talk about some of this stuff next year. This is, my, this is our last class until 2023. So... Until 2023. Yep, we won't have this one. All right, we're all done for now.